The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And this evening we are in our 16th lesson on church history. And when I began this series uh, just months ago, actually this was a summer replacement series last year. The intention was that I'd just do a few sermons on the church and then we would be ready to start a new book of the Bible. But once I got into it, it just kept growing and growing and growing until now we're on the 37th lesson on the doctrine of the church and the 16th on church history. And I think this is really good for us because there is a lot of misinformation about the church. I mean, there are so many people that think that all churches are the same, that what you do is you choose the wrapper on the outside or you choose by that whatever you like. And then when you open up the package, that what's on the inside will be pretty much the same. But as we look into the New Testament, we find that that is one of Satan's tricks one of his areas of misinformation, and we find throughout the, the New Testament there are, or there were, many attempts to pervert the doctrines of Christ and cause people to believe a lie. This is why the Apostle John wrote in Second John, uh, uh, verse number 7, he said, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And then he goes on in the ninth verse and he says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now there are many epistles in the New Testament that deal with that very problem. They deal with it in one way or another. And of course Jesus in his ministry dealt with false Christ. People who who were saying they were telling the truth but really telling people a lie. And so coming out of the first century, there were already many attempts to pervert the gospel of Christ, and there were already many splinters of the church. There were already offshoots of the church. People had begun to form their own congregations, and that has led to what we call today denominationalism. Now, in truth, there is only one church that is not denominational, and that would be the true church, and that's just because of the nature of what we call denominationalism. Now, what we seek to prove is that the Baptist church is not a denominational church. And I know that we use that terminology all the time. That's kind of church speak nowadays, and we even call ourselves a denomination. But strictly speaking, we are not denominational. A denomination is a branch of this so-called Christian church. But we're not a branch. We're the trunk of the tree. And we have our roots that go all the way down into the New Testament. Now, I mention that tonight because it is a very important part of our study. And we are in the fifth part of our study, still continuing with that, and that is the age of the Renaissance and the Reformation. And I've talked a lot about those two things, and now we've come to the place that we've moved on beyond the original reformers, that is talking about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and some of the others, and we're settling into a period of time uh, that churches, true churches, were known by one name, and that is the name Baptist. Now, we came through the Reformation, 
but we were never a part of the Reformation. And this is where historians really begin to muddy the waters because Baptists were trudging along throughout the Reformation, and we believe many of the same doctrines that the Reformers were teaching, and that's led people to believe that that Reformation movement is how the Baptist church got its start. That because we are so similar in many of the doctrines that we have, and of course we're not Catholic, then we must be a part of the Reformation. And so they believe that that's where the Baptist church got its start. But if we believe that, then we are denominational. And we're not a denomination. Uh, that false view, it is a false view, and we've, we've shown ample proof that there were Baptists long before the Reformation and that our history stretches back to the first church that Christ started in Jerusalem. And so now we're at a time in our history that all the other names by which we were known were dropped. And the last name that Baptist that kind of comprehended a larger group of people uh, into one name, that was the name Anabaptist. But then the Anna was dropped, and then we were simply known as Baptist. And when we began to be known as Baptist, that's when the modern era of the Baptist began. Now, at this point, those many different names that included some that weren't Baptist at all, they've now been separated out of the group that we call Baptist. And now we have the term that we use, Baptist, defines a particular group of people that have a core set of doctrines that they hold to. And so we're no longer mixed in with or other people that are thrown into this group that are called Anabaptists. But now we're simply known as Baptist, and we have these core group of doctrines. Now, at least for the most part, uh, common belief and practices among Baptists have stayed the same, uh, with occasional ones that have departed from that because they don't really know their own heritage. But the problem still remains that we have this common claim that Baptists were born in the Reformation, which, of course, would make us Protestants. And our studies have shown that we can't be Protestants because Protestants protested against Rome. We never protested against Rome, that is, against the Catholic Church. We never had to do that. In fact, we could say this, that all Catholics are actually Protestants. And they're Protestants because they protested against us and what we believe. The Roman Catholic Church was actually the first schismatic in all of this. But despite all the best efforts that we have to prove that the Baptist Church is not Protestant, that we did not begin in the Reformation. There are still many people fueled by the historians and so forth, uh, that most of them that have an axe to grind, that say that we are a Reformation church. And, and it's really hard to even state this in one way, to say the Baptist church, because there is no such thing as the Baptist church per se. And compounding our problem are Baptists that really don't know the history, and they make the claim also that we're Protestant. And that's the position of those who are called Reformed Baptist. And their name gives a, a good indication of what they believe about church history. That's why they call themselves Reformed. It used to be that among the Southern Baptists that you could find uh, people, leaders, who denied that they were Protestants. But for the most part, among the well-known leaders of the Southern Baptist Church today, you don't find hardly anybody, if anybody, that no longer says that they aren't Protestant. So we have to wonder then, if, that's, if, they're, if they're right about this, what are we going to do with Matthew 16, 18? What are we going to do with the scripture that Jesus says here that really doesn't match the history of a church that went into just 
total apostasy and has now become twofold more the child of hell than it ever was before. What are we going to do with that? Well, here's what people have done. They have redefined the church in Matthew 16, 18. And they've reinterpreted it and given it a new definition. And so the church is individualized. Jesus said the church is a body. While these people believe in a universal invisible church, which is a body that has been cut into pieces and sent all throughout the coast of Israel. Now you might wonder, what are you talking about? Let me give you a reference to what I've just said. In Judges 20, verse 6, it says, And I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed lewdness and folly in Israel. And you may ask, what in the world does that have to do with the church? Well, the closer I get to Bob, the more I think like him. And uh, I'm just using that scripture as a metaphor just to, to show you that Universal church theory mutilates the church, that it just actually destroys the history of the church. It falsifies it. And so I, I kind of get weary of this whole thing of defending this issue that Baptists are not really Protestants. Because if we admit that we're Protestants, then what we've done, we've cut ourselves off from the church that is in the New Testament. So now we've reached a place where Baptists that predated the Reformation have gone all the way through the Reformation, and now we have emerged on the other side. And so now we're no longer trying to prove that uh, we are an ancient church with uh, sketchy historical records that are anti-Catholic in doctrine. Uh, we no longer have to, to try to prove that those that are heretical were never really a part of what we are that the mainstream of groups that call themselves Baptists are holding to these core doctrines that opposes Catholicism. And so now we've moved into a time of church history when there are thousands of Baptist churches and when there are writings and when there are Baptist theologians and when there are books by the hundreds and the thousands almost, books that are and histories that are extant that we can pick up, that we can read, that we can study, and we find out that we are theologically theologically consistent on the major doctrines of the faith and many of the minor ones as well. So at this point, what we need to do is turn the compass of our study just a little bit and go into a different direction. Now, if all of us were living in the Ukraine, then we would, want, we would wonder, how did the Baptist church get into the Ukraine? And if we were living in Australia, we would say, well, how did the Baptist church ever get into Australia? Well, the church is in Ukraine, the Baptist church is there, the Baptist church in, is in Australia, but we're not in the Ukraine, we're not Ukrainian, we're not Australian. What we want to know is how did the Baptist church get into America? I mean, that's what we're primarily interested in, isn't it? How did the America, uh, Baptist church get into America? Now, a few, a few weeks ago, our, the kids were up here singing, and they were singing America the Beautiful, and... You know, that caused me just to think about this very thing. Here we have these children singing these songs in a Baptist church in America. So how did we get into the good old USA, the land of the free and the brave, and also Democrats? So how did we, how did the Baptist church actually get into America? Well, we know how this happened, uh, for the most part at least. From a human perspective, we owe our presence in America to English Baptist. So that's where we're going to go right now. Uh, number six in your outline, we're going to talk a little bit about English Baptist. 
Where did English Baptists come from? Are these English Baptist Protestants? Are they people that just fell in line with the Reformers and then the Reformers began to influence people that were in, uh, in um, uh, England? Is, is that how that the Baptist Church got into England? And there are most, people, most people do think that. And they claim that the Baptist Church came out of the Separatist movement about 1582. Now, the last time, and that's been a while ago since we talked about church history, I mentioned the separatist, only I didn't actually use that name. I used the name Congregationalist. Do you remember that? I talked about the Congregationalists, and the Congregationalists were definitely Protestants, but they were also separatists. That's the separatist movement. And these are people, the Congregationalists were those that were separate from the Reformers on the subject of church government. What the separatists wanted to do was to separate from the Church of England. That's a Protestant church. And what they wanted to do was to form their own churches. And one of the important names that you might remember among the separatists is Oliver Cromwell. Now, he was a good man. He was a godly man. He was among the separatists that were in England. And then you might also want to make this note, and we are going to talk some more about it later on, is that the pilgrims were separatists. And one of the reasons that they came to America was because of the intolerance of the Church of England. They didn't like all of the strictures that were put upon them by the Church of England. They wanted freedom to worship in their own way, not to have this hierarchical government proposed by the Reformers or others, but rather they wanted congregational rule among their churches. Now, among those separatists, there were Baptists. They were separatists among separatists, you might say. And both of the groups resisted the church government of the Reformers. And we were so closely allied on that issue with the Congregational Church that there are many people who believe that the Baptist Church got its start out of the Congregational Church or the Separatist Movement. Now, let me point out to you for just a moment here, I'm going to go on a sidetrack for just a little bit, that there are many Baptist churches today who say that they have congregational rule. That is, all the membership of the church is, are, is in charge of the business of the church, and we vote equally. We're all equal members of the church. And they say that they have congregational rule, but they actually deny it in practice because their churches are ruled by the pastor. And they have pastors that are more like dictators that control every aspect of the church. And many of the fundamental Baptist churches are that way. In principle, they deny what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. And there Peter was speaking to the elders of the church, and he said, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, you can tell when a pastor has become the pope, and that's when he controls everything that goes on in the lives of the membership. And what he does, he holds the church down with his fist. I know a pastor in Virginia of a fundamental church there who was very clear about this, that when he interviewed new members that came into the church, he would tell them, this is my church, we do my th way, things my way, and if you don't like it, then just forget it. Well, there are some people that like to live that way. There are some people that need control. They, they want somebody to tell them what to do all of the time. 
And many of these times, many of times these people will come out and they'll think, oh, we were really great Christians. We're very knowledgeable Christians. We're very good Christians. And in some ways they are, of course. But you get to talking to them and you find out that they don't really know very much at all. And all of their opinions are, have been fed to them by someone else. And so they just agree with the pastor whether his opinions are right or wrong. I would never want to be a pastor like that. I would never want to so control you that you take everything that I say, whether it is right or wrong. Now, what I, of course, encourage you to do is study the Bible, learn for yourself. Uh, You respect the office of the pastor, but I'm not the one who controls your life. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're in a church where we have equal membership here. One vote is as good as another. I have influence because I'm the pastor, but I have one vote in the church, and I can get outvoted. Don't try it, but I could get outvoted. So, you know, pastors like that, uh, what we really don't need to do is to replace one pope with another pope. I mean, as far as like Catholicism is concerned, we don't need to replace one pope with another pope. Um, But that's exactly the thing, that is exactly the thing that Baptist churches gave their, people in Baptist churches gave their lives to get out of, to get rid of, And so you don't want to replace a Catholic pope with a Baptist one. Now, my opinion is, you've heard me say this before, that when you line the platform with the hierarchy of the church, you got a problem. you got a problem about who's actually in control. Well, an interesting thing about this claim that Baptists came from congregationalism is, is that the founder of the Congregationalists, who was Robert Brown, actually got his ideas from the Baptists, not the other way around. So the Baptists were already already there in England, and the Congregational Church took that idea of congregational rule and decided they wanted to make that their own. Well, there are others who say, well, the Baptist Church, yes, well, came out of the separatist movement or something like that, and there are those who say that there was a man by the name of John Smith, and that's S-M-Y-T-H, John Smith, who was the founder of the Baptist Church in 1609. And if you read any church histories, you'll find that that's often stated. And what John Smith wanted to do, he also wanted to break off from the Church of England and become so different from them that really he was more different than anybody had ever heard of. And so he started a Baptist church. And they say that it was John Smith who thought up the idea that the leadership of the church is supposed to be the pastors and the deacons. That composes church leadership. And they say, well, he's the one that first thought of that idea. And I suppose that they must have ignored what Jesus said in Matthew 10 and what the apostles said in Acts chapter 6 and what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So it would seem to me that crediting John Smith with the invention of church leadership is a bit of a stretch, a bit of a stretch. I mean, we didn't need somebody to invent that. We find that in the New Testament. Now, there is a lot of myth and legend about John Smith, but we know for sure that he did not originate the Baptist in England. We know that there were Baptist people in England as far back as A.D. 63. Now, remember us talking about that? And I'm not going to go into that history again. We've already discussed that period of history. But there's very good evidence that there were Baptists in England all the way back to just after the time that Jesus was crucified, along about the time of the Apostle Paul as he was ministering in many different places of the Roman Empire. Then we've also talked about these other names. We've talked about Lollards, and we've spoken about Wycliffeites, and we've talked about the Waldenses. They were all 
in England before the Reformation. And so we know that they aren't Reformation churches and they believed or, or were ancient Baptists. Now, John Smith left England and he went to Holland where he joined up with the man by the name of Thomas Helwes. And uh, uh, that church also claimed to be Baptist, but later John Smith was excluded from that church and he eventually joined up with the Pedo-Baptist. Now, a Pedo-Baptist is someone who practices infant baptism. Now, what this all tells us is that John Smith was never a Baptist in England nor in any other place. Now, another interesting fact that shows that Baptists were in England before the Congregationalists is that Henry VIII issued a proclamation against Baptists in the 16th century in which he, uh, his proclamation was against the Baptists because we did not believe in infant baptism. He also passed laws that said that the Baptists could not print books in England. And then there are other proofs. There were at least five cities in England that had Baptist churches that, I mean, this is recent enough history that we know this, or there are records of it, that in the middle of the 16th century, there were at least five Baptist churches in England dating back to 1457. And then added to that, uh, there's evidence that there was a Baptist church in, in uh, Cheshire, England, called the Hillcliffe Church that was has been in existence or was in existence at least until 13, uh, as far back as 1357. Now, several years ago, I was doing a study like this, and I was teaching on church history. And there was a man who approached me, and he was one who was defending Baptist successionism, or what we call landmarkism. And he had a document that was produced by a church that I believe was on the East Coast. And this church... Uh, was trying to prove that the Hillcliff Church was one in the genealogy of its churches, and that helped to establish the link that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. And that Hillcliff Church, if you, if you look at people who try to prove things like this, is one that often shows up in those links of chain link succession going back to the New Testament. Now, what I personally believe about that is that you have to watch out for people that rest their case in those types of connections. Now, we can believe this. We can believe that there were gospel churches, true churches in existence all the way back to the time of Christ without going through the effort of trying to prove it through a chain link history that that actually happened. I mean, we can believe it because we believe what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. So I don't think that we really have to go to the trouble to try to establish that kind of history. And if that's what you rest your case in, then you're doing something that you can't actually prove. I mean, there is no actual history that links, a written history, that links every church together all the way back to the time of Christ, although we do believe that there were churches of Christ in existence in every century all the way back to the first century. Now, on top of these kinds of statements, we, we have the witness of Pastor Charles Spurgeon. Uh, you know, I've mentioned him many times. Uh, Spurgeon in England, the great English Baptist, affirmed that there were Baptists in England before the Reformation. Now, Spurgeon was a very highly respected pastor in his time, still is today, and his opponents knew very well that he advocated for the Baptist church as the true church that was begun by Jesus and the apostles. Well, that brings us to a very important question. There are Baptists in England, and they Go all the way back here through the Reformation. We say they go back before that. And the real question is, what did they believe? 
What did those Baptists believe? And this is where we get into a great amount of controversy, such controversy that it causes the blood to boil among many people. That is, who actually represents Baptist theology in England? Well, let me take you back to John Smith and Thomas Helvis for just a moment. As I said, there's a lot of controversy over them about whether they were actually Baptist. But one thing that we do know about John Smith and Thomas Helwes, and that is that they were Arminians. They were Arminian in their theology. And those who accept that John Smith and Helwes are, in, are the founders of the Baptist Church in England will say that the Baptist Church in England, all of them were Arminians. Now let me help you out just a little bit here if you don't understand the terms. Uh, first of all, historians have no problems putting the word Arminian in front of Baptist as a modifier. They don't have any problem doing that. And that even, even among Baptist historians, there is no problem in saying that there were Arminian Baptists. Now, the only reason that I bring that up right now is that Baptists today who have a distinctly Arminian theology in character hate being called Arminians. They don't want you to call them Arminians. As the Hatfields and McCoys would say, them are fighting words. You don't call me an Arminian. And what they don't know is with their lack of study. Now, let me just say this, though, first, that Ar Arminians, I'm going to explain to you Arminian beliefs in just a moment. But one of the things that Arminians believe is that you can lose your salvation. They believe in falling from grace. And so these Baptists who say they're not Arminian will say that, because they don't believe in falling from grace, that you mislabel them if you call them Arminians. And so they hate that. They hate that. Now, obviously, they don't believe in falling from grace. But again, with the lack of study that they have, they don't understand that the doctrine of eternal security has never been the defining issue of Arminianism. That's not the main thing. Jacobus Arminius, who, was, who uh, Arminian, Arminianism is named after, was actually noncommittal on the issue of eternal security. He never pushed it one way or the other. So on the other aspects of Arminianism, these Baptists agree. Now let me just point out to you what these agreements are, because most of the people that you will run into, no matter where you go in the United States, the majority of them, even though there are many, many Baptist churches who believe just what I teach you, but the majority of them, especially among fundamental Baptists, are they are Arminian in their theology. So what does that mean? What do they believe? Well, let me point out to you what Arminians believe. First of all, they agree with Arminius that man is depraved. And we agree that man is depraved. But they do not believe that man is so radically depraved that he lost all of his spiritual capability. In other words, they, they don't believe in what we call total inability. Number two, they believe that the election of God is conditional and that election is based upon foreseen faith of the individual. In other words, as I've been talking the last couple of weeks, there are those who believe that God looked down through time and he saw who would believe. And based upon who he saw would believe, God chose them for salvation. And that makes God a responder and not an initiator. And, I, and I'll leave you to try and figure out who is the decision maker in that viewpoint. Number three, they believe that the atonement is universal in its extent, but limited in its effect. Number four, they believe God's grace is not always effectual. 
so that an individual can reject the grace of God and God is powerless to do anything no matter what he wants to do with that person. Their will is superior. And so you decide, or if if you're one of them, you decide to be saved and not God. And then number five, they believe in eternal security. Now we're talking about Baptists now who are Arminian. They believe in eternal security, but they do not believe in perseverance. Now they say that God does not require a believer to persevere in the faith. But on the other hand, a believer will, will be eternally secure because of the preservation of Christ. And so, in essence, these Baptists are in fact Arminian with a dispute only about a half of a point of the total being, of being just total Arminians. So basically, these are Arminians that don't want to be called Arminians. Now let me give you a little bit of a tip on this. If you have these discussions with people, with pastors like I do at times, you'll hear some of them say, uh, I'm a Baptist, I am not an Arminian, I am a Biblicist. I'm not an Arminian, I am a Biblicist. And let me tell you what to do when you hear that. You say, okay. And then you write a note on your bulletin, he's an Arminian. <laughs> because people who believe like we do don't have to say we're Biblicists. We already believe that. They're denying that they're Arminian. So they say we are Biblicists, not Arminians. Now, as I said, this is very contentious, contentious territory, and these... These fellows can redefine themselves all that they want. But the historical fight over these issues is very well known. And it seems like everybody but them knows what we're talking about. And we know who is who in this argument. I mean, this is not a mystery to figure out who is who in this argument. There is no dispute on this that there have been Arminian Baptists. There still are Arminian Baptists, and there always have been Arminian Baptists. And the Apostle Paul wouldn't have had to write the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians if there weren't any Arminians. I mean, just what I, what I talked to you about in Romans chapter 9. Paul would not have to write Romans chapter 9 and explain God's choice in election and what he did there if there were no people at that time in the church that were Arminians. So that's always been a fact of life. There have been Arminians, people who don't believe in the doctrines of grace. In fact, Arminianism is the natural position of all people until they have become enlightened on the doctrines of grace. Now, Baptists in, our, in, in England that were Arminian were known as General Baptist. If you study the history, you'll see the terms. They were known as General Baptist. And the word general is used because they believed in a general atonement, or in other words, the atonement is universal. And with a belief in universal atonement, then you would expect what would happen is that the inevitable would happen, that the logical conclusion of Arminianism is universalism. And the English Baptists who were general, the general Baptists eventually went all the way to universalism. Now, uh, I don't have time to explain all of this, but I will say this, that General Baptists believe that the atonement of Christ covers all people, which in turn means that the sacrifice of Christ covers the sins of all people. That no matter who you are, whether or not you believe in Christ, whether or not you have ever heard of Christ, and even people who were already dead and in hell before Christ came, their sins are all covered under the sacrifice of Christ. 
Now, here's the first problem that we have with that. If Christ paid for all of your sins, all of the sins of all people, then how could there possibly be anybody in hell? I mean, what is God going to charge people with at the judgment? What, what is he going to charge them with if all of their sins have been paid for? Now, either Christ paid for your sins or he didn't. Now, the second problem that you have is that they say that the death of Christ becomes effectual when you believe. Well, in other words, if you don't have faith, then the sacrifice of Christ is no good, which means that it's even possible that no one would ever be saved and that Christ would die for nothing. What this does is it affects the substitutionary death of Christ because Christ could not actually be a penal substitute. Does everybody understand what I mean when I say penal substitute? He pays the penalty of the law. That's essentially what a penal substitute is. That he couldn't actually be a penal substitute if that substitution is not predicated upon anything. It can't be just an ethereal thing to put it out there and say Christ is a substitute for sin. He paid for sin. It has to be payment for sin of somebody, doesn't it? And if we say that Christ actually is a penal substitute for them, then again, we end up in universalism. And so what do they say? What do they say is it that kicks all of this into gear and makes the atonement work? Well, they say what makes the atonement work is faith. Well, if that's true, then you're saved by what you do instead of what Christ does. If we say that faith is the thing that makes the atonement work, you're the one that has faith, right? And so you're the one who makes the atonement work. And so that means that Christ's death means nothing at all until you take action. That all the merit in Christ's death goes for naught, or at least it's neutral, until you take action. And if that's true, that makes you the Savior instead of Christ. Now, God doesn't let salvation work that way. And the reason that he doesn't is very clear, told to us in the book of Ephesians. He doesn't let it be that way because he doesn't want anybody to boast. He doesn't want anybody to say that part of this is what I did. And you would say, well, nobody believes that. None of these Baptists believe that part of what they did is what causes people to be saved. Well, let me quote someone that you've heard me quote many times before, an Arminian Baptist very near here who put it in his own pamphlet in which he said, thank God I had the good sense to believe. And you think that people don't boast? You know, I was talking about this. uh, I'm I'm throwing this in. This is not in the notes, and I have to look around and see if I'm going to get my head cut off after I say this. But um, there's there's a book that was written by a fundamental Baptist that... Probably some of you recognize the name, Carrie Schmidt, whose book, the title is Done. It's Done. And the premise of his book is that Christ did everything that he can do for you, and now it's up to you. He did everything that he could do, and now it's up to you. That's what Arminian Baptists believe. Thank God that I have the sense to believe. Now, that's why that theory of the atonement is never going to work. And that's because first, last, and always, Jesus is the Savior. Even your faith comes from him. And you don't have any good sense at all when it comes to the matter of salvation. And so that's why God has to take over or you're not going to be saved. Well, here's the theological conundrum that has to be solved by the Arminian. If Christ's death is 
truly substitutionary and Christ paid for the sins of all people without exception, then everybody without exception must be saved. A universal atonement can lead nowhere else. It must yield universal salvation. Now, the only way that you get around that is to redefine the biblical terms. So you have Baptists, and you've always had Baptists that have been confused about this. They're confused about the worth of the atonement. And what I really think about the issue is that the Baptists who were in England were much better theologians than the Baptists that we have today. And I'm talking about the general Baptists then. They were much better theologians than we have today because they knew where their Arminianism would lead them, that it would lead into universal salvation. And so they just skipped over all the nonsense that everybody's arguing about, and that's what they did. They became universalist. That's what happened to the General Baptists in England. They became universalist. Now, with that little bit of a sidebar on the tenets of Arminianism, uh, we see that the atonement is a central issue in that. And it's common to hear an Arminian say the atonement is unlimited. And by that he means that the atonement applies to everybody. He says there is no limit on the atonement. And there we come to the huge argument. Is the atonement limited or is it unlimited? Well, what we have to do is we have to let cooler heads prevail on this. And no matter what the Arminian says, he does believe in a limited atonement. Everybody believes in a limited atonement. That is, everybody but a universalist. All believe in a, in a limited atonement. And what the Arminian does, he limits the effect of the atonement. That it doesn't cover all, it covers all people, but there's no effect until somebody actually does something with that. But we agree with historical Baptists who said that the limit of the atonement is in the scope of it. The Arminians limit the atonement by saying it's made for all, but it doesn't really save all. But historical Baptists say that the atonement is made for some, and it saves all for whom it was intended. That Christ did everything that he came into the world to do. He saved everybody covered under his, or will save everybody covered under his atonement. Now, I've got a little bit of a philosophical question that I'd like to ask, and I don't necessarily rest the case in the philosophical, but here's the question that we would ask. Is God glorified more in trying to save those he cannot save and will not let him save them, or is he glorified more in infallibly saving those he intended to save? Which one of those exalts the power and the sovereignty of God? Now, that's the philosophical question. Which one of those two positions more exalts the sovereignty of God? That God saves who he intends to save, or he's trying to save people who will not let, them, let him save them? So that's the philosophical question. Now we're going to look at the empirical proof of what God actually does, because that proof is in the Scriptures. And Jesus affirmed that his death was particular. And this is what he says, John 10, 11. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. In John 10, 15, he said, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, what I don't read anything about there is Jesus giving his life for goats. Now, the sheep are always synonymous with those who are going to be saved. Now, what's going to happen to those people according to Jesus. Well, we find that in Matthew 25, 
where it says, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left hand. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed to my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so those that are on the right hand go into the kingdom of God, and those are the sheep. Now, do we really need to add to that what happens to the goats? Well, the goats don't go into the kingdom of God. Now, listen to what Jesus said about those who are not his sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of an exercise here in biblical interpretation. Jesus did not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, the first statement would say that they could be sheep if they would believe. The second statement says they cannot believe because they are not sheep. That's exactly what Jesus said. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. So it shows us that the sheep must mean something very special to him, and indeed uh, they do. Just as the Scripture says, the sheep are the ones that he gave his life for. These are people that uh, they're, they're, they're not the goats, and they're never going to be goats. Now, that has huge implications on our ideas of theology. These are radically different concepts, and there's only one of them that truly respects the sovereignty of God. Now, it's clearly evident that those who believe that the atonement is particular and it's limited, that is limited in its scope, those people who believe that could never become universalist. It's impossible for them to become universalist. Particular redemption and Universal atonement are two things that are never going to cross paths. That simply can't happen, or universalism and particular redemption. And so contrary to Arminianism, that's what historical Baptists believe. What we believe is that man is depraved. He is unable to come to Christ without a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, that, that he calls or brings a person to life as he regenerates them in order that they may believe, and that is what we call monergism. That regeneration is a sole act of God when the Holy Spirit brings a person to the place of repentance and faith. Then secondly, we believe that the election of sinners is unconditional and not conditional. That the election took place in eternity past, and it's not based upon what God saw in us, but that election of God is based upon God's sovereign pleasure, God's sovereign will, and what he will do for us and not what we're going to do for him. Now, thirdly, the atonement is particular, and I've already explained that. Fourthly, we say that God's grace is always effectual. It's always effectual, and that's because regeneration is the work of God as he brings a dead sinner to life. Now, according to Romans eight twenty nine and 30, which you know well, 
For whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now we're dealing with the issue of effectual grace, and right there it says that calling results in justifying. Justification always comes out of this kind of calling that we find here, and that is the effectual grace of God. Whom God calls, he always justifies. And you can't get rid of effectual grace from the Scriptures unless you cut them to pieces. The effectual call is upon all that God intends to save. And then fifthly, God does preserve our salvation. We are eternally secure, and yet God also demands that we persevere or that we remain faithful to him. God requires that we endure. We must persevere. Now, this is what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blamable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled And be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, have made a minister. Well, those are verses on perseverance. How can anybody deny that God says we must persevere? But do we fret about that? Do we worry about this, whether we can persevere? Not at all. Because our perseverance, everything that God demands, is supplied by God's grace. The only way that you're ever going to persevere is by the grace of God, that he makes you persevere. So we're not afraid of a command that God gives when he says you must persevere in the faith. And does that mean that we're saved by our works as the Arminian Baptists claim that we believe? Not at all, because we believe that it is the power of God, the power of Christ in us that causes us to persevere. Well, who does the persevering? Well, of course you do. Christ doesn't do the persevering for you, but you do it by the power of God. Now, you may be asking yourself, why do I bring all of this up? Why do we even talk about such things as this? Well, as we're studying history, it's essential for us to understand what happened theologically as Baptists came out of England and they came into the United States. What was it that these Baptists believe that came into the United States? And, well, it wasn't the United States then, of course, but to America. What did they actually believe when the Baptist church got started in America? Well, the only thing that I can tell you is that Baptists who believe the doctrines of grace are the very closest to our Baptist forefathers. And that's why we call ourselves historical Baptist. We go back to things like the Waldensian Confession of Faith, things that they left us, and we know what those people believed. Well, that's going to beg the question for most people, and that is, are Arminian Baptists really Baptist? Well, we've got to settle down and catch our breath a little bit here. It's not necessary for you to understand all the doctrines of grace and believe them 
to be a part of the true church. Now, what we're talking about here is an issue that's been disputed for centuries. Uh, Several months ago, I gave you those core doctrines that must be believed in order to constitute a true church, and the doctrines of grace were not on that list, although they do have bearing on everything that is on the list. And you may not believe them, you may not understand them, but you can still be a Baptist. And I'm going to tell you, you're not as close to the Baptist church that Jesus started, but you can still be a Baptist. And the reason for that is there aren't any churches that are perfect on doctrine. So we may not all agree on these issues that we're talking about here. But I will say this, that it's impossible to be a part of the true church if you take the Arminian position to that logical conclusion. Now, the issue with Arminian Baptists today is they don't think far enough ahead to get to the inevitable conclusion. Now, what happened in England was that those people went down the Arminian road that always leads to universalism, and that's exactly where they went. They went clear to the end of the road, and they fell off the other end. They were Arminian Baptists who became universalists. So then what about Baptists in England? What's the other side of that? Where did Baptists in America come from? Well, we came out of the group that was known as the particular Baptist. They are particular as regards the atonement. They believed in particular redemption, which in fact is the term that Spurgeon preferred rather than limited atonement. He always used the term particular redemption. So they're particular, not general, on the atonement. And there are two great foundational statements of faith that came out of that period. Uh, One of them is my favorite, the first of them. That's the first London Confession of Faith of 1644. And I really like that confession. Um, uh, It's it's very clear, I think, and it's the only one, the first one that was really, or the one that was produced that was uninfluenced by any other confessions of faith. And in that confession, it affirms all of the essentials of what it takes to constitute a church. And that would be justification by faith alone and believer's baptism, those things that we've discussed, uh, baptism by immersion, soul liberty, and all those things. But it also includes the doctrines of grace. And the reason that includes the doctrines of grace is because the Baptists at that time thought that this was very integral to understanding salvation in Jesus Christ, to really understanding what it's all about and what Christ did. Well, the Baptists in England that held to that position are men like William Kiffin, and Benjamin Keach, who are giants in church history. And then in 1689, the Baptists produced another confession of faith. I mentioned this in a lesson a few weeks ago, and that is the second London confession of faith of 1689. And at that time, you had Baptists like John Gill. And John Gill is the probably the greatest historian among, or rather theologian among Baptists that has ever been produced. John Gill has a, has a set of commentaries where he commented on every single verse of the Bible, and, I, and there's nobody that's ever actually even done that. Uh, John Gill commented on every verse of the Bible, but then he had his magnum opus, which is called The Body of Doctrinal and Practical Divinity. That's his systematic theology. And if you want to know where I get a lot of my ideas and what I think like for years, my thinking has been influenced by John Gill and what he wrote in The Body of Doctrinal and Practical Divinity. And then he produced another book that's called The Cause of God and Truth. And in that book, he goes all the way back to the very beginning to the church fathers and proves that they all believed in the doctrines of grace. And that book has never been successfully refuted by the Arminians. 
And so those are the kind of men that, that came out of that time, and these are the forefathers of Baptists that came to America. Now, here's the important conclusion that I want to bring us to, that those Baptists are representative of nearly all Baptists that were in the United States up until the middle to the late 19th century. They represent Baptist missionaries, people like you've heard of, William Carey, who is called the father of modern missions. Adoniram Judson was also a particular Baptist. Uh, Carey was in England. Judson was in Burma. Men like Hudson Taylor and Luther Rice, they also believe the doctrines of grace. I mean, contrary to this thing that's always put out, that there's no way that you can believe in evangelism and believe in the doctrines of grace. These are men that prove it because they labored in the most difficult mission fields of the world, believing exactly what we believe. Now, as I close tonight, what I'm really not trying to do is to stir up controversy. But I don't mind if I do sometimes. Uh, I'm not really trying to do that. But I wanted to mention this to you, that the other day I received a, a magazine uh, that is associated with the Bearing Precious Seed Ministry. I don't know if you've ever heard that, of that, but I think it's a very good ministry. This is a, a group that, uh, that translates Bibles, prints Bibles, and sends them all around the world. So it's a good group in that respect, and it's run by Baptists. But they have a companion magazine that's called The Unpublished Word. And I know the editor of that magazine. I was in his church a few years ago in uh, back east, and he's since retired from that church, but I know who he is. I've met him before and talked with him. And uh, in this particular issue of the magazine, there was an article that was written by a former pastor of Berean Baptist. And in this article, he took a shot at the doctrines of grace. And he put them into the category of doctrines that are heretical. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I continued to read the magazine and I was flipping through the pages and I came to another article. And this was an article about a missionary in the 19th century. And I happened to know that missionary and what he believed. I mean, I didn't know him personally, uh, but I, I know who he is. I know what he believed. I know what his doctrine was. And they were applauding this man because of his selfless devotion to the cause of Christ. And that man believed exactly what I've been teaching you in this church. Now, in their article, they applaud him, as I said, for his stand, his strong stand on the doctrines of Christ, what a great man that he was for God. Now, the interesting thing about that article, as I said, I know the history of that missionary, and he was just like the majority of Baptists that were then. He, they strongly believed the doctrines of grace. And yet the editor of this magazine and probably 90% of the people who received the magazine and the pastor who wrote that article, the former pastor of Brian Baptist, who wrote that article in the magazine, that if that man was alive today, they would never let him preach in their pulpit. They would not let him preach in their pulpit. And that's because he believed the doctrines of grace. Now, as I told you, I think it was last Sunday morning, that I know of one prominent Baptist preacher who said he could never be friends with a person who believed what, I taught, what I've been teaching you in this church. Now, here's the thing that I wanted to point out about that, that Baptist publications love to dig up these interesting stories about Baptists from the past, but when they get back beyond the 20th century, they don't have anybody to choose from. 
They don't have anybody to go to but those people who believe exactly what we teach right here in this church. I think that's kind of odd. That's really kind of strange. And I noticed that in another publication that I receive, another one that's against our beliefs, and yet they were always having these stories about Baptists who believe just what we believe. Now, what I think about that is that it's either kind of schizoid or it's dishonest or it's ignorance. Did you know that one of the side effects of schizophrenia is delusion? This is what a psychiatrist wrote. People who have delusions will continue with their delusions even when shown evidence that contradicts the delusion. And that's how I feel sometimes when I argue with people about this point. I mean, some people, I think, they believe the delusion even when shown evidence that contradicts their delusion. So what is that we know about Baptists in England? Well, we have their writings. There are plenty of those. This isn't a mystery to us. We have John Gill, who wrote hundreds of books and pamphlets. Spurgeon, who occupied uh, Gill's pulpit at a later time, is the most published Baptist preacher or preacher of any kind in the history of all of Christianity. His books and his sermons are everywhere, and we know what he believed. And there are millions of all of these things out there, and, and there, are, there are preachers who disagree with us who love to quote Spurgeon. And I don't really understand that because you wouldn't want Spurgeon to be your trustworthy source if he disagreed with 75% of your doctrine. How, how do you do that? Well, here's the thing. Deluded people continue with their delusions even when they're shown how contradictory their delusions are. When they're shown the truth, they still continue with their delusions. Well, I've outlasted my time tonight, so I'm going to close with that. And next, what we're going to do when we come back to this is we're going to go into the good old USA and we're going to see the effect that all of this had on Baptists in America. And good news for all of us here is that our history goes back to the Mayflower, that there are Baptists on the Mayflower, and that's how we got to America. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the time we've had to study tonight. And Lord, we've said a lot of things that are controversial to people, and I understand that. I know that. But what we don't do is we don't ignore the Word of God. We've read Scripture, and we've shown some things that Jesus said. And what we always want to do is not try to cover up things and not try to pretend or anything else, but simply believe what Jesus said what the Bible says, and that's where we're going to derive our doctrine. Help us, Lord, to understand these things and appreciate them ever so much. Uh, We just thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.